From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with a simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. All right, get ready for season four of Euphemet, the critically acclaimed paranormal documentary podcast series. Jim Perry is the host and creative producer, and he's standing by from his home in the Pacific North Weird. Uh, well, the Pacific Northwest. Uh, he's brought some clips from the upcoming uh, season, and uh, we're happy to have Jim. He's, again, a podcast host, creative producer, entrepreneur, based in the Pacific Northwest. His fascination for the anomalous anomalous rather events that happen in people's lives inspired the creation of Euphemet, uh, the critically acclaimed audio documentary podcast about the strange and our relationship to it, Everyone has a weird story, and Jim is devoted to uncovering the intimate, human, eccentric version of these supernatural tales. And uh, always a great pleasure to have Jim uh, Perry on the program. Hey, Jim, how are you? Hey, Richard. It's so good to talk to you. It's a pleasure to talk with you here tonight. I've had you on the podcast a bunch of times on Coast to Coast. I don't know that we've had you on the weekly radio show here. So for those not familiar with this uh, podcast, Euphemet, just tell them, you know, what it's all about. This is not, you know, I, I do a podcast and it's just sort of one-on-one interviews, but this is a documentary style. Tell us about it. Yeah, Euphemet is a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. And when I say that, it's featured stories of individuals who have had paranormal experiences that have really transformed their lives. You know, we're looking at individuals that maybe they just saw a ghost once, but then that sighting eventually led to something that fundamentally changed how they looked at themselves and their place in reality. And, you know, before COVID, I would uh, go out and travel and commune with these folks, sometimes stay on their couches or go on little adventures and basically embed myself with them uh, to, to, to get their, their truest sense of their story and find the person behind the sighting or the experience. Are things opening up in the, in the Northwest? Are you able to, because you're a boots on the ground kind of guy. You go, again, in a documentary series, you can't do that sitting behind a microphone at a desk. So are things yeah, opening up? They are a little bit. I'm still waiting so I can kind of travel comfortably. But, you know, what's been really interesting is doing this fourth season from home. The amount of intimacy that I've been able to explore with my guests through just the computer, through using software, has really surprised me. And one of the things that's been interesting is that this season is primarily based on listeners who maybe in in another world wouldn't quite feel comfortable maybe sharing as much space with me as maybe someone who's a professional, you know, author or, you know, has kind of run the circuit in the paranormal. These folks have come to me very uh, delicately with their stories through email or social media. And I've had to, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to chat with these folks three or four, sometimes five different sessions to uncover what their stories really mean to them and, and put them all down to tape. But the first thing that I was really scared about doing it during this time and doing it remotely was losing that sense of urgency and the connection with whoever I'm trying to help tell their story. The converse happened. And it became even more intimate than before. So 
thankfully that's the case, but I cannot wait to get back out on the road at the same token. We're going to play some clips, uh, and you're going to introduce us to some of these characters that are documented in your in your podcast series. But what is it about the Pacific Northwest? Why is it so ripe with these types of anomalous, paranormal happenings? Well, it's anyone's guess at this point in time, but I feel like there's something to be said for the, its geography. Uh, the conditions here are suitable for something that we call liminal space, and we'll hear about some of that in the clips that we'll present here tonight but you know you're essentially looking at a place where you're in between charged locations uh, you're stuck in between large bodies of water and volcanic mountains a lot of people would suggest that creates different vortexes it, it creates like a sort of a, uh, a, a siphon where energy can flow in and out at, at a rapid pace if those things are all are true then this would be the perfect location for that but you know, we're looking at, you know, the, 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 the most historic tales of Sasquatch, uh, the birth of the flying saucer in 1947 with Kenneth Arnold, the mysteries of, you know, sort of various cryptids that inhabit the different island spaces here, like Shrimpy, and, and from these clips here tonight that, uh, you know, a few of them based here in the Pacific Northwest, all sorts of strange stuff happening on shore and then off on the island chains as well. All right, so introduce us to Libby. We're going to play a clip from this episode. Libby, who is she? And uh, sort of set it up for us. This is The Haunting. Yeah, so Libby was a listener of Euphemet, and she wrote me to tell me and share my, uh, share her story. And it was very, very eloquently put together in these emails, and I could tell that she was a writer. That's what I guessed, and I was correct. She's a writer. You know, she would describe herself as a skeptic, when she and her husband moved to a remote island in the San Juans in Washington State. And that's when their skepticism was immediately tested, Richard. She describes living there as if being in a different world. Uh, it's dark, it's quiet, it's isolated, and this is where strange things like to happen, of course. All right, so this is a fairly lengthy clip, but, uh, you know, sit back and relax and enjoy this clip from Season 4 of the paranormal documentary podcast, Euphemet. I'm going to try something a little different this week. I'm actually playing these clips off my phone. So it's a bit of a fireman's uh, bucket brigade here. But here we go. This is Libby and the Haunting. We decided to rent before we bought a place just to make sure we really liked it since it is so isolated and so far away from everyone else we know. <laughs> um, so we found a little rental house and, um, and moved in. And right away we started noticing a lot of things happening there that we weren't used to happening in our homes, but being as skeptical as we are, we found ways to sort of write it off as, as just coincidences or just normal happenings. So one of the things that would happen frequently is we had this old armoire in the bedroom and the door on it would just open and close at, at weird moments. So, you know, we'd be sitting in bed, watching something on our laptops or whatever, and just out of nowhere, without anybody walking past it or shifting the floorboards or anything, the door would just swing open on this armoire. And we'd be like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> and we'd get up and shut it. And it, it was nothing that, obviously, it's not like a dramatic thing, you know, an old armoire door swinging open. I mean, it's a pretty commonplace happening. So we didn't really think much of it, except that it just happened a lot. Like, <laughs> it, was, it was very frequent. It was pretty much always when we were in the room. It got to the point where we wedged this little sock in the door of the armoire to keep it from 
from swinging open. And it's still would open sometimes, even with the sock in it. You know, we wrote it off as like, well, the floors must be uneven, even though there were no other signs of the floors being uneven in the house. We're not willing to entertain that it could have been anything other than just a mundane experience. After we stopped acknowledging that the armoire door was doing its own thing, that's when things started to escalate beyond beyond just that activity. So the, the way the bedroom was set up, the only place we could put the bed was up against this window that looked out onto the backyard. It was just like the bed pushed up against the wall and the window right above the bed where a headboard normally would be. We began to notice this handprint on the window right above the bed. It was a large handprint, like an adult size handprint, wash the windows inside and out. And, um, you know, the next day it would be back. We never really talked about it much. Like eventually we washed the windows so many times and immediately the handprint would reappear in exactly the same place at exactly the same angle. I mean, it was always the same handprint over and over again. This was never anything we discussed. We, we just kind of had this silent agreement to never talk about the handprint. It just kept coming. We kept washing it away and eventually we stopped trying to make the handprint leave our lives. It was just a permanent fixture of the bedroom. It did feel like something was trying to get our attention. You know, something was trying to make us notice that it was there. And maybe something was kind of insisting, I am here. You know, it was, <laughs> we were so, so, um, so willing to write off the armoire door opening in front of us all the time as, oh, it's just, you know, houses, that's, the floors are crazy. That's something totally mundane. It almost feels like the handprint was kind of an escalation, like a more insistent energy just asserting itself and saying, I, I'm real, you know, I'm really here. I'm not a figment of your imagination. You start going, okay, this, this is not, this is not uh, anything I've experienced in reality before. And, and it's awfully hard to explain this with purely skeptical, rational, <laughs> rational means. I would say about three or four months after we had moved into the rental house and probably about two months after we had just accepted the handprint as a fact of life that wasn't going away, we had been, you know, up at night, sitting around the dining room table, each of us working on our two respective laptops. And, um, you know, bedtime rolled around. We fed the cats. We locked the doors. We got into bed. When we got up the next morning, the table was empty and both of our laptops were gone. Of course, at first we thought, oh gosh, well, we must have put them somewhere weird and we didn't realize it. So we looked for them and they didn't turn up. And then we tore the house apart looking for them and they were nowhere. I mean, we could not find these laptops anywhere. And, you know, I work from home. Like, that's how I make my living is on my laptop. So I was like, oh my God, what happened? We thought, well, you know, this dining room table is right next to this slider door. And maybe somebody was prowling around our house, looked through the slider, and somehow got in and stole the laptops. And we went and checked, and the slider was still locked. But, you know, always looking for those skeptical excuses for, for weird things, we thought, well, maybe somebody jimmied it open, and when they closed it again, it, it popped the lock back into place. I don't know. So we couldn't think of anything to do except to file a police report. So the sheriff came out and he looked around and said he found no evidence at all of any kind of forced entry, but the laptops were undeniably gone. And so he took the report and was like, okay, whatever, crazy people, and he, and he left. 
how long after that it was maybe a couple of days you know we had like ordered new laptops and stuff we were just ready to move on with our lives i went into one of the spare bedrooms and i was looking for some bedding and i cut open a, a box that was still taped shut from our move and pulled all the bedding out and on the bottom of the box underneath pillows and blankets were two laptops inside a sealed box and we had just used those damn laptops like two days before uh, it was chilling <laughs> I, I was terrified for a minute i didn't understand how this could possibly have happened i took them out and i walked up to paul with them in my hands and he said where did you find those and i said inside that box that was taped up in the spare room and we just stared at each other for the longest time and then he said let's just not talk about this ever again <laughs> And we didn't. <laughs> what else are you going to do? <laughs> I don't, I still to this day have no explanation for how that could have happened. But if that didn't destroy my, my absolute skepticism, um, I don't know what else could have possibly done it. I mean, how do you explain that? <laughs> you can't. And once we found a place and put an offer in it, you know, we, we were kind of friendly with our next door neighbors there. And, and we mentioned to them, oh, yeah, it's been so great living near you guys, but we're actually going to be moving soon because we're buying a house. And she said, oh, you know, the house itself, it's kind of weird. And I was like, yeah, it's a little weird. It's slightly weird. And I was kind of surprised that she knew anything about the weirdness of the house. And she said, well, did you hear about uh, what happened in this house before you moved in? Did the owner tell you? And I said, no, what, what happened? And she said, the lady who owned it, uh, her husband passed away in the bedroom, in the, the master bedroom. And so that was where the handprint was appearing and where the uh, armoire door was opening all the time. And uh, who knows, maybe he also lifted our laptops and repacked them for us in a, in a box. But I was like, at that point, you're not going to be scared by somebody saying, like, maybe there's a spirit haunting that house you lived in. Because, like, I've already been living there for months, you know, I'm, I'm used to it at that point. So I was like, oh, OK, well, that explains a thing or two. There you go. Wow. There's an old expression in uh, broadcasting, Jim, uh, that is, you bring good tape. You hit the quinella with this. I mean, what a, a load of paranormal activity going on in this place. A fabulous story. Yeah, thank you, Richard. I mean, I think at the end of the day, this story is really about um, definitely the paranormal aspects and what is going on on that island and what is going on with that individual, but also uh, skepticism itself. And that how a lack thereof can uh, shape our relationship to our sense of self, uh, our sense of place, family. Uh, but how when we open ourselves up to new ideas, we may find they're old ideas. And without that, make us feel more connected to things like our ancestors and the wonder and the possibility of what else could be out there. And, uh, and she's so believable and authentic. This uh, Libby is, is her name. But she just seems to be kind of going with the flow, like nothing seems to throw her. Yeah, you know, I think when you live in a situation like Libby, and she's a writer, so she's inherently creative, you kind of have to use those influences in your life to create a narrative for yourself, perhaps. And so what Libby did was, you know, she didn't automatically, you know, sort of... Um, 
feel that way. It, it was shocking. It was jarring to her and her husband as these events started to transpire. But where she found solace is when she actually went back and started researching, hey, is there a correlation between being on an island, for example, and an elevated level of paranormal activity? What she found within her own lineage is, you know, uh, pagan beliefs that were very similar to what we would call uh, liminality or liminal spaces that attributed elevated paranormal activity in islands. You know, the islands being essentially world between worlds, a place where the veil is thinner, perhaps, and these things have um, is sort of a, a shorter distance to interact with you. So, you know, as soon as she found a connection to both her ancestors in the past and what they believed about and, you know, uh, grew accustomed to that, the, you know, kind of leaned into the weirdness a little bit, uh, I think it actually kind of felt like she wasn't alone as much anymore and that maybe this was just kind of a new, exciting way to live life. Ordinarily, you would have been sort of on location, correct? I mean, were you kind of sorry that you couldn't be there and maybe witness some of this stuff yourself? I really was, especially in terms of her specific locations. Now, I have spent a lot of time on that island and in the San Juan Islands in general. And in fact, you know, that archipelago, you know, things like Vashon and Mori Island could be considered the tail end of that as a Justin Tacoma there at the end of the Puget Sound, so, or, or in the midsection of the Puget Sound there. So, you know, I have spent time uh, boots on the ground there, uh, but just as a tourist, right? Just as a curious onlooker. Um, but with that, I, I find myself engaged in those situations just as, as much as I can't turn it off, Richard. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. you, you land in these places and you want to relax and then you start looking around to see if there is a legend of a ghost or, or, or a UFO sighting or whatever else. So we're going to take a time out here shortly. When we come back, we've got another clip from this same episode. It's uh, called The Intruder. What is the actual episode called? So when people uh, download Euphemet, they can find, we can find this specific episode. It's called The Island. Jim Perry returns on the other side as we continue to preview season four of this terrific podcast. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant. And we're back with Jim Perry, the creative producer and host of the podcast Euphemet. What does that mean, Jim? Euphemet, what is it? This story has changed a couple times because I thought it was originally influenced by just liking a euphonaut, that sort of classic vintage term, and changing it to something that's kind of ownable and brandable. But as I kind of considered it, I, I've had this fascination with uh, the idea of Pan, uh, the trickster, right, the trickster element, uh, the playful devil. So really, euphemet is kind of a euphemism for that, uh, a, a euphemistic uh, uh, baphomet, if you will. So that playful devil kind of encapsulates the show's spirit of finding that trickster element within the paranormal uh, that seemingly occurs and is a very important part of the phenomenon at large. The logo for the podcast, the thumbnail, is a moth. What's the connection there? Moths are attracted to light, but they're also associated with death quite, quite a bit. So, you know, I like that. I like the idea of within the darkness, you know, we, we are flying towards the light. We are trying to find some sort of truth, whatever that is. 
uh, it feels um, hopeful to me to be able to think in those terms while also paying attention to what that darkness really is and, 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 and the danger and the mystery that that holds. So that, that's really where the moth came from. All right, we're previewing season four of the Euphemet and the Euphemet podcast, or Euphemet podcast, and and uh, this is also from that episode we played earlier. This is the island and Libby here again. This clip we're calling the Intruder. Just set this up for us quickly, Jim. Yeah, in, in this next clip, Libby settles into this new weird life, and the strange nature of this place, Richard, really shows itself to her. All right, here we go. Philosophers, poets, and writers like to talk about that moment when staring into the abyss, when it turns to stare back at you. I live outside of town by a few miles, but my friend who lives in that little tiny town I mentioned earlier, she was on vacation for the holidays, and she asked me to take care of her cat while she was gone. So I said, you know, sure, no problem. I would drive into town a couple times a day, feed her cat in that single neighborhood that's, that's lit at night. It is just pitch black everywhere. So I came out of her house, and um, I went down into the driveway, got into my car, backed out of her driveway, just like I did every night that I took care of her cat. And um, I drove to the end of the street she lived on, which ended at a little stop sign. And then as you sat at the stop sign, across that road, there was a short little cul-de-sac with a few other houses on it. So the headlights of my car were shining down into this cul-de-sac from the stop sign. What I saw at the end of the cul-de-sac, where it rounded out, was this this large, broad-shouldered, humanoid figure crouched down. And I just, I just remember grabbing hold of my steering wheel and looking at this dog-headed thing that was crouching down against the ground and staring back at me. And I remember saying out loud, is that a werewolf? If you imagine kind of crouching on your heels with your knees sort of up, and it had its hands down between its feet. Its body was completely black. It had a very, like a narrow skull, a narrow long muzzle, and two big pointy ears that stood straight up. So it kind of, if you can imagine the Egyptian god Anubis with the jackal head, that's what it was. It had two bright green luminous eyes that were staring back at me. If you think of um, the, the tapita lucidum in most animals' eyes that reflects light at night, that was the same kind of reflection I was getting. That, that was where the light was coming from. It was like a retinal reflection from, from a dog. It was, it was moving a little bit, it, and I, I kinda, that was what caught my eye, I think, was the motion of it. And I stared at this thing, and I realized it was its body was heaving as it was drawing really heavy breaths. I just, like, cranked the wheel and drove off as fast as I could because I didn't know what else to do. And, like, I was so shocked. I didn't even grab my phone to try to take a video or a picture of it. I just, I didn't even think of that in the moment. All I could do was stare at this thing and just think, what the hell is that? I've never seen anything like it before. <laughs> so, yeah. So I drove off as fast as I could. And at first, of course, like as I was going through town, I was just like, I was shaking. I was freaking out. I kept looking in my rearview mirror thinking this thing was going to come chasing after me, right? And then I got about halfway to town and um, my thoughts slowed down a little bit. And I started to kind of think about 
its posture and its like its hard breath. Before I was writing full time, I was working as a zookeeper, and I realized, I guess from from my experience with working with so many other kinds of animals in the past, that、um, its body language was saying that it was scared, it was terrified. And all I could think was, it had to have been terrified of me. And then I sort of realized what it must have looked like to that creature, this you know metallic vehicle suddenly emerging into its reality with lights emanating from it. And I thought, oh my God, I was a UFO. My Hyundai was a UFO. Like <laughs> I scared this poor. This poor being, this entity, whatever it was, like somehow I popped into its reality, or it popped into mine, or whatever, and and I was I was the scary thing, you know. <laughs> I was the terrifying object that shattered its its reality. And then I was just I was laughing. By the time I got back home, I was like, "What the hell, man? Some some beast out there in some dimension thinks that my Hyundai is a UFO." <laughs> There you go. Well, a happy ending, anyway. Are the islands, the Puget Sound islands,、uh, noted for dogmen sightings, or was this a new one on you? This was a new one for me. I mean, of course, Sasquatch is known as something that、uh, not just the islands, but of course the Olympic Peninsula and the Cascade Mountain Range. You know,、uh, the state is lousy with them.、Uh, you know, but the the dogmen or the werewolf. You know, listen, we're like. We're getting into twilight territory, you know. I mean, <laughs>、um, with with wolfmen、uh, in that area. But listen, I I, I think it's、uh, if Sasquatch, if if that level of cryptid beast is there, and this elevated、um, liminality is occurring, then of course the dogman is there. I mean, if we look at other places around the world, which features. You know, sort of a, a panoply of of different paranormal activity. The, the dogman is ever present. You know, you look at places like Skinwalker Ranch, for example, as one example. So, you know, is it possible? Sure. You know, the thing that really surprised me about this story was just that just that idea that she poses there,、uh, that that we could be that other thing, Richard. Like we're having experiences, but. You know, maybe in these liminal states, it's possible that we are the ghost, we are the UFO, we are the cryptid to whatever else we're engaging with. That's kind of mind-boggling to me. It is. That's a difficult one to wrap one's head around. That our reality is bleeding into theirs. So basically, we're talking about inter- interdimensionals. These are not some heretofore undiscovered. Mammal like the you know the mountain gorilla from the 1920s or whenever it was they were discovered. These are these are interdimensionals. Is that how you see it? That that's what these things are. They're not necessarily even physical. You know, I don't claim to be a researcher investigator. I just claim to be a storyteller,、uh, an amateur anthropologist at best. But you know, the stories that I have learned from, especially in this area, point towards some sort of interdimensionality. At least in terms of those that are experiencing it firsthand, I, like m- me myself, there is a sort of a living quality to these things that express themselves in a, a, a very close but distant way. Now I know that seems kind of complex, but for example, in 1947, when Kenneth Arnold saw his nine flying craft over the Cascade Mountains, you know, he looked at those things and originally thought like those those are you know a, 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 those are a device. 
those are rockets, right? Those, those are something from Germany or from Russia. Maybe we made those. But as he aged and as he got older, he, he started to develop a more uh, sort of nuanced reaction to what those things could be. And he started to believe that they were potentially interdimensional. And it, it's more based on sort of a feeling than even, you know, hard evidence. But, you know, it would suggest that those feelings that we have and the relationship that we have with these, uh, you know, cryptids or UFOs or experiences in general mean just as much than any sort of tactical evidence that we may ever find. All right. This is um, from the island an episode, uh, season four of Euphemet, the paranormal documentary style podcast, and uh, Jim Perry is with us, and you can find Euphemet wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We'll be taking a break here shortly. When we come back, we're going to play, uh, it's a short segment, but we'll have time to squeeze in one. It's Hugo, and this is uh, The Haunted House. Just as we head into the break here, just to tell us very quickly who Hugo is, Jim. Yeah, Hugo is a professional painter from Arizona. He dealt with a certain psychic sensitivity while growing up, and it started really to take over his life as a little kid, uh, a time really where he didn't know what was happening to him and, and, and definitely not any way to control it. All right, we'll get to Hugo when we come back, play a clip, and uh, continue to discuss Euphemet and all things paranormal high strangeness from the Pacific Northwest, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, Jim Perry, Euphemet is the podcast, season four, and we're kind of previewing that for you. And uh, so this is Hugo who has some, I guess, some psychic ability. He's down in Arizona. And uh, so what are we going to hear in this clip, The Haunted House, Jim? You know, we're going to really hear a snapshot of how kind of tough his childhood was, how strange these empathic behaviors or these empathic experiences were, you know, affecting his life when he was a kid. And he didn't really have much context on how to control these feelings or, or this ability that he had. And uh, we're, we're going to have just a little snapshot of what that was like for him. All right. Some scary stuff here, folks. Have a listen. I always knew, like, things were, were different around me. When we started house shopping, that's when it started coming out the most. Still remember one of the first houses that we looked at. Pulled up, chain link fence in the front, nice, beautiful green grass. And I was in the back seat with my mom and my sister. And I look at the house and the first thing I see is on one of the walls sitting in the chair. So she would be facing the floor. It's an old lady. So she was not on the ground. She was, her chair was on the wall when I saw her kind of looking over and smiling, but it was the ugliest, most putrid smile ever. And that's the image that I got. It's not like I'm seeing you. It's almost like a quick, like a boom, like a flash. Like, bam, there's an image. And I was a little kid, you know. And as soon as that image hit me, I grabbed onto my mom. And my mom, she was always very in tune with me. She said, you know, what's the matter? And I said, hey, look, there's no lady in this house. I just saw her. She's in there. She's not nice. She's in that back room right there. Like, Mom, I don't want to go in this house. And I started freaking out, started panicking. 
I thank God for my mom because she said to my dad, she's like, hey, we're not going in this house. He's like, well, why not? She's like, no, you know, I, I don't really like it. And she, she made something up. And she told him later, you know, what I had told her. And my father was very, um, oh, man, he's old school and a drinker back then. And, and, and unfortunately, he was physically abusive towards me back then. And, you know, he, he went the typical, ah, he needs to stop being such a and blah, blah, blah. And right away, I was like, this is strange. This isn't right. Like, why? Why is this happening to me? We fast forward. My dad's talking to my mom and he's got this look like disbelief. He's, he's just like, I, I, what? Are you sure? Are you, are you positive? And uh, being the nosy little kid that I was, you know, I walk in and he walks away from my mom. And I'm like, what's wrong with, what's wrong with dad? You know, what's, what's his deal? <laughs> and Vera, the lady that was the realtor, told him that, yes, there was an elderly woman that lived there and she passed away in the house. She passed away in one of the back rooms. And I right away was like, I knew it. You know, I was like, oh, I told you, you know, <laughs> I had I won. I had a victory. You know, it wasn't a good one, but I was just like, oh, yes. You know, I hope he's terrified. <laughs> and uh, he looked terrified, this man. He just looked like, I can't believe this, you know? Because my dad is very like, if I don't see it, I'm not going to believe it. You know, if, if it doesn't happen, if, if I didn't see it, it didn't happen. <laughs> and I'm like, that's an awful way to think. <laughs> there you go. Hugo and uh, his <laughs> childhood remembrances. My God, what a horrible ability to have to be able to see. Yeah ghosts uh, that way that must have been tortured he really was you know in addition to that as he mentioned his dad was really abusive you know he he you know kicked him over in his high chair one time and you know kicked him while he was down on the ground you know uh he was a really abusive man you know hugo says he's changed for the better you know as he he's gotten older and stopped drinking and they have a different relationship now but you know i, I think those sort of childhood traumas, you know, kind of like parking back to your first hour, Richard, you know, they, they, they definitely make an impact. And for those that are empaths, you know, they can kind of color what kind of information that you're feeding into. I think if you're in a negative space, seemingly, those interactions that you get from the other side uh, seemingly are more negative than not. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's really telling, I think. Right. So do you think, in your, based on your experience and in, in, in years of covering this beat, that being in a type of relationship like that invites entities maybe into your space? Hmm. I mean, I think if there's a, uh, if you're preconditioned to have some sort of uh, inherent ability, yeah, it really does. Like everything suggests that based off of the life you're living at the time and the influences thereof, whether positive or traumatic, that they influence what your relationship is with the other side. So some evidence suggests that it's based off of manifestation as well, you know, that we are participant in whatever the strange is, that we are co-creating whatever that relationship is. And if we're bringing negativity to it, and that's it, you know, I think we're met with that. And What's fascinating about Hugo's story is that later on in the story, we, we, 
we see the converse of that starting to occur once he gets away from the traumatic elements and he starts introducing more positive elements into his life, his interactions begin to fundamentally change with the other side. All right, and we'll uh, come back with another clip from Hugo. Uh, We're calling this one the Uber, an interesting interaction in which uh, his intuitive uh, empath abilities come to the fore. Jim Perry with us from Euphemed, the fabulous paranormal podcast now in season four. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. All right, Jim, we're going to hear from Hugo again from uh, season four. This time he's in an Uber. Just set it up for us. What's happening here? Yeah, so this is Hugo from a few years ago, right? So he's an adult. He's been able to change the circumstances of life. He's found positive uh, inspiration, and, and he's now a painter. And this is just kind of a, a snapshot of, of uh, how his, his abilities sort of shift and change and that these frightening apparitions that used to visit him kind of become spirits of a friendlier variety, and that's when things can get a little bit awkward. All right, here we go. I had a Uber take me up from work, and on the way home, she was just talking, and she's like, yeah, blah, 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 and I'm in the backseat trying to listen to her, but I keep seeing this guy in, like, a military uniform come into my thoughts, and he's very like, can you say something? Can you speak up? And I'm like, oh, God, no, I don't want to do this. And finally, you know, we make a turn and we're like maybe two streets away from my house. And I, I put my hand on her shoulder and she gets quiet because that's that's already weird. Like your passenger just put his hand on your shoulder. What the hell? <laughs> and I said, um, is your dad dead? And I thought that she was going to be like, get the fuck out of my car. And she slows down. She pulls over and she goes, "Uh uh-uh, we're not doing this while I'm driving. I'm pulling over. We can do this when I pull over. And I'm like, oh, she's going to fight me. And uh, she pulls over and she goes, yes, but I'm not telling you anything. I want you to tell me what you're thinking right now. And I said, I keep getting this guy who's in a military uniform and he's kind of like yelling at me to get your attention to say, hey, go ahead and sell it. Let it go. It's not a big deal. You need to stop worrying about it. Just let it go. And by the way, everything's going to go great. (laughs) And that's it. And she was super cool about it. And I, I didn't know this at the time, but after after we shared this experience, she told me she was very religious. So she, you know, she had those mannerisms. After I said that to her, she goes, "Jesus, Lord Almighty, oh yes." She's like, "I've been waiting on this for forever." And she got real excited. She started crying, and she goes, "Both of my parents died, and they died a few months uh, away from each other. My dad was a career military." And we actually pulled over next to the base that he worked at his whole life. And I was like, what? And, and it was true. We There's a base really close to where I live. And she said, this is this is where he used to work. So it's weird that we, this is where I decided to pull over. And she said, when they died, they left me the house. 
I've been having some health issues, which I could feel right away when I got in the car. I felt like she had a cloud over her, you know. She was very like, she was there, but she was somewhere else in her in her mind. She's like, they left me their house, and I've had some health issues recently. I have a big surgery coming up next week. I'm worried about that, and the house payments are just becoming too much. And and my parents own that house for forever. And I feel guilty because I don't know if I should keep it and continue to struggle and stress out or if I should sell it. And my grandkids have offered to buy it, but I don't want that burden on them either. You just answered my question. You just made everything crystal clear. It's okay for me to sell it. I think that's what my dad means by let it go. It's fine. It's not a big deal. Like it's not worth your help. And by the way, everything will be fine next week. She, that's when she's getting her surgery or her procedure or something. So she was like, I'm so thankful. I'm so glad I picked you up. This, you just answered all my questions. I feel so much better. I can't wait to put the house up on the market. And I was like, yay. <laughs> like, Please take me home now. <laughs> so, <laughs> or I can walk whichever's best. <laughs> so, you know, but it's so random. It's so random. And I think that's why it makes me so uncomfortable. And being an empath, I can just read people, you know, I can read a room. I know when people are uncomfortable or it just certain things come easy to me. And I think back then I just didn't know. All right. There you go. That's a remarkable story. My word. <laughs> that is the number one question, really. And, and that is what happens after we die? Where do we go? Does that question sort of haunt you? Does that inform, maybe motivate you? Is that why you do what you do? The big death question, what happens, what's on the other side? That's a really great question. Uh, Richard, no one's asked me that before at all, and I don't even know if I've considered that. But it has to have some influence on what I do, sure. I mean, I think that like anyone, we go through life and we experience death. It's a part of life, obviously. And I think when you're connected to the paranormal in any sort of way, especially professionally, you know, those things tend to cross over and dovetail a lot, that exploration of that side of things. And, of course, it's it's compelling, right, the conversations that you have with individuals that have a connection, whether it's synchronistically or not, are able to bring back information that then enriches other people's lives is completely, uh, it completely fascinates me. But I have to say, I'm not, I'm not as compelled by death as, as, as I am compelled by life. You know, I, I, I really hold a lot of respect for what's happening right now, being in the present, in the, in the present moment with the people that I'm trying to uh, tell their story and respect and honor their timeline and try to leave as much of any of my baggage out of it as possible. And sometimes that has me considering life and death. Sometimes I just have to step back from it and go like, just wait, just, you know, focus on them and think about, you know, what could be afterwards. Uh, but yeah, I think we're all thinking of that, right? Especially as we get older, what's on that other side? Will we see our loved ones again? What, what do we become, if anything? Uh, it's, it, as, a, as, a, as the grandson of a preacher, right, like those questions are ingrained in you very early on. And also as 
uh, the grandson of a, a of a psychic, um, you know, you're also you, you, you believe in something else that could be out there has been instilled in me from day one, and I like to translate that into just a general wonder and curiosity, um, disattached from a lot of fear. I think. Wow, that's quite a lineage, Jim. A one grandparent, a psychic, another a preacher. Um, yeah. What about it, after? Uh, toiling in the vineyards of the paranormal and the unexplained, do you find, because this happen, is happening increasingly to me, uh, that you notice more and more synchronicities in your life? Hmm. Yeah, I do. You know, and I also, like a lot of us, have that fear when they go away, right? Um, you know, it can feel really good when you're in the flow with those and seemingly one thing's leading to the other and, you know, you feel activated by that, especially when you're looking into the paranormal and you're involved in this. When those things go away, that's even more alarming for me because you feel like, well, am I doing something wrong? Uh, Did I go down the wrong way? And, you know, most typically with synchronicities, what's really interesting in, in speaking with, you know, friends that are shamanic healers or, uh, even practicing in a cult or, or, or sorcery, wizardry even, you know, there's a conversation about uh, what is the meaning of synchronicities and should they always be trusted? And I'll harken back to this fascination I have with Pan. I think synchronicity is a tool set, you know, that, that embodies the idea of Pan. You know, uh, you will be activated and chased down in synchronicity. And everything will be great until you get to that dead end, and you will get to that dead end. Now, how you respond to that is the most important thing. And when you develop that ability to either say yes and participate or no, I'm going to back off, is is really a powerful thing as well. Right. I'm not sure what to do with them yet, even at my advanced age. I just, they're like little Easter eggs for me. And uh, um, yeah. a, a wonderful curiosity. I'll just very quickly give you one that happened to me. I was hosting Coast oh, to yeah. Coast last night, and I had uh, Kathleen Martin on. She's the, the niece, of course, of uh, Betty Hill, Betty and Barney Hill, the first widely publicized alien abduction uh, case, and it's yeah. the 60th anniversary. And uh, towards the end of the, uh, the, the two-hour segment with her, and I programmed the music that I, the bumper music that I play on Coast to Coast, uh, actually, and my brother-in-law um, uh, helps me and uh, from time to time, and he'll, uh, he, he programmed the music this particular night, and we were playing a song. I don't even remember the band, but it was, uh, the, the, uh, the, the song was something called Pressure Concussion or something Concussion. That was the, the last song we were playing out into the break, and just before we played that, Kathleen was talking about her uncle Barney Hill, and he had died from a brain hemorrhage. And I asked her what caused the brain hemorrhage. Was it the stress of that alien abduction and all the negative publicity it brought him later? And she said, no, during the Second World War, he was uh, in close proximity to a, a hand grenade that went off and he suffered a pressure concussion. And then I said goodbye, and I roll into that music. And that music was picked, of course, you know, like a week in advance. And that's just one tiny example, but uh, that happens a lot. I don't know what to do with it. I just kind of stand back and uh, and um, am pleasantly amused or, or delighted by it, really. It's like a little gift yeah. from the universe. Yeah, Jim, it's... Uh, Some would say a cosmic wink, right? A cosmic league, indeed. Uh, always a great pleasure. How do we, uh, again, how do we listen to Euphemet, your podcast? 
Yeah, you can find Euphomet wherever you listen to podcasts that's spelled E-U-P-H-O-M-E-T. You can find me on social media with that, too, at Euphomet, E-U-P-H-O-M-E-T, or at It's Jim Perry. And you can find everything at Euphomet.com. You do terrific work, uh, Jim. These are fantastic uh, podcasts you're putting together. Thank you so much. We'll talk again. Thank you, Richard. Take care. All right. Uh, back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. <laughs>